At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Conti Ride Home for Wednesday, November 17th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the progenitors to on-demand streaming music, including the multiphone in the 1950s American West and the theatrophone in 1880s Paris. Plus, new findings about Jupiter's great red spot from NASA's Juno spacecraft and the woman whose own immune system seems to have effectively cured her of HIV. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So you know those wall box jukeboxes that they used to have at diners? You know, they sat on the tables and basically acted as like remotes for the diner's main jukebox so that diner operators could basically rack up more change by having a bunch of patrons unknowingly all pay a nickel for the same popular song. Well, for a brief period in the mid-20th century, mostly just in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, there was another device that looked slightly similar to those wall boxes, though with less buttons and designed to resemble the Empire State Building. And it had a similar function. It lived on the tables at diners and allowed you to play a song you wanted on demand for a small fee. But instead of acting as essentially a remote for a primary jukebox machine, it actually played the music through its speakers. How did a device that was invented around the late 1930s achieve that? Via telephone lines. See, when you slid your nickel, or later dime, into the top and perused your many options listed on the machine, instead of pressing buttons, two gem-like lights would illuminate, letting you know there was a phone connection that had been made. And from there, you'd speak with a real live telephone operator come disc jockey, who would then load up your selected track on a turntable in their central music studio in Seattle and play it for you over the phone. Wild, right? This device was called the Multiphone, and it was invented by a man named Ken Shivers and his wife Lois. Ken is also sometimes credited with inventing the pinball machine, but it seems like he just invented one feature of pinball machines, the score totalizer, which, like many other pinball innovations happening around the same time, helped turn them into the machines that we know today. But back to the multiphone. Apart from the intimate nature of getting to hear your song on this small device right next to you, as opposed to amplified to the entire bar or restaurant, the multiphone also had way more selections than jukeboxes of the time. Those only had a record range of about 20 to 48, where multiphones had up to 170 on offer. All of the DJs that you would call up were women, and blogger Messy Nessie in her history of the multiphone wondered if on those request calls there was ever any small talk, and Atlas Obscura had the answer. According to Loretta Shepard, who worked as a multiphone DJ in the 50s, quote, she also on occasion played the role of therapist, especially with lonely servicemen who'd call in as much to hear another human voice as their favorite song. If we weren't too busy, we talked with them, says Shepard, who lives in the Tacoma 
Sonoma area. They just needed someone to talk to. We would just listen, you know, and be kind to whoever was on the other end, end quote. Which is kind of nice, at least in theory. Living in the internet age, you can imagine how that might get out of hand. To try to mitigate the amount of flowers and candy boxes being left at the studio door and the number of marriage proposals happening over the lines, Shivers instructed all of the DJs to pick a microphone alias. The most popular alias was Mabel, and never reveal the location of the studios. Now, while Shivers made one of the best products for utilizing telephone technology to deliver on-demand music at the time, he wasn't alone, or the first. Quoting Messi Nessie, Hop over to the Atlantic to Paris 40 years earlier and you would have encountered the coin-operated Theatrophone, set up in hotels, cafes, clubs, and theaters across the city. Invented in 1881, the earliest telephonic distribution system could broadcast and transmit sounds to 48 listeners at a time through various telephone lines running through the sewer systems. Foreshadowing today's popular music streaming services such as Spotify, the Teatrophone service also offered subscription tickets at a reduced rate to attract regular subscribers, even at home. Marcel Proust was a keen subscriber to the service. End quote. There was also the Electrophone in Britain in 1895, which also used telephone lines, and at the same time, San Franciscans Louis Glass and William S. Arnold were inventing the nickel-in-the-slot phonograph. That was the real first predecessor of the jukebox, and like other early predecessors, didn't use telephone lines, but rather the phonograph's usual wax cylinders paired with listening tubes, or a kind of early type of headphone. The only real innovation from Glass and Arnold was charging people per play, but it still paved the way for later jukeboxes and, to some people, our on-demand streaming services today. And, by the way, they weren't actually called jukeboxes until about the 40s. Quoting again from Messy Nessie, The term originates from the juke joints of Jim Crow's Deep South, where these informal dancing, drinking, and gambling establishments, rarely more than ramshackle huts, were primarily operated by African Americans so they could have somewhere to socialize since they were barred from most white entertainment establishments. The word juke derives from the Creole word jug or jug, rowdy, disorderly, or wicked. When African-American workers and formerly enslaved people migrated north in the early 20th century, they brought with them the term, and the cafes, restaurants, and bars that started housing coin-operated phonographs became known as juke joints, end quote. And as for the Shivers Multiphone, it never went too far beyond Washington State, in part because Shivers was a prolific inventor, always moving on to the next big thing, like his idea for a combination ashtray-slash-spittoon. But also because in the 50s, 45s became more common, and their smaller size allowed jukeboxes to hold way more songs, rivaling the overwhelmingly large selection of the Shivers Multiphone. So Shivers pulled them from the market in 1959. You can still find some on occasion on eBay or in antique shops or on display at some Seattle area museums. And according to a local Seattle NBC affiliate, of the 8,000 that were originally produced, only 1,500 remain. A lot of them were apparently turned into lamps. Now that is something I would like to find. But mostly, I just love these early solutions we had for very human desires that seemed to persist across time. In this case, the desire to enjoy music as often as possible. Despite the smaller selection comparatively, the Shivers Multiphone really isn't all that different than Spotify today. You just imagine if every time you clicked on a song, there was a cool woman DJ out in Seattle putting the record on for you. 
Thanks, Mabel. I don't know why, but as a kid, my favorite planet was Jupiter, and I was mesmerized by its great red spot. I mean, a mysterious storm that's been ongoing for hundreds of years and is bigger than three Earths put together? How could you get cooler than that? So, of course, I've been pretty stoked about NASA's Juno spacecraft, which has been orbiting Jupiter since 2016. Juno just completed its planned orbits around the planet and will spend the next few years doing flybys of some of its moons, namely Europa and Io. And over the last few weeks, we've gotten a bunch of new information from Juno about Jupiter and especially about its enigmatic Great Red Spot. First, some background on the Red Spot, quoting NPR. The Great Red Spot is like a storm here on Earth, but supersized. It's basically clouds, says Paul Byrne, a planetary scientist at Washington University in St. Louis. Really, it's not all that dissimilar to the kinds of things we know as cyclones or hurricanes or typhoons on Earth. At 10,000 miles across, the Great Red Spot is the largest storm in our solar system and has been continually observed for around 200 years, but it's been around for much longer. Compare that with big storms on Earth, which generally last a few days or weeks at most. We believe this thing is really old, says Scott Bolton, principal investigator of NASA's Juno mission. How it lasts that long is a mystery. End quote. Despite only being able to observe the spot from afar prior to Juno, scientists were already able to tell that the spot has been slowly shrinking and has been flaking off bits of reddish material which are being drawn out of the spot by encounters with smaller vortices. But with Juno's new data, not only have we learned a little bit more about that, but we've also learned that the red spot, often described as a pancake, is actually much, much deeper than we thought. Quoting again from NPR, Bolton and his team used microwave sensors to slice into the depths of the storm, getting the first 3D model of the great red spot. The microwave observations show these storms on Jupiter, called vortices, extend below the cloud deck of the planet. In the case of the Great Red Spot, it extends at least 200 miles into the clouds of Jupiter, beyond the depths of where the clouds form and water condenses. That's very different than the way we think Earth's atmosphere works, which is largely driven by water, clouds, condensation, and sunlight, says Bolton. How that works is going to require new models and new ideas to explain. End quote. And as Yohai Kaspi, a Juno co-investigator at the Wiseman Institute of Science in Israel, told The Verge, quote, It's a gigantic storm. If you would put this storm on Earth, it would extend all the way to the space station. So it's just a monster. End quote. But Lee Fletcher, an associate professor and planetary scientists at the University of Leicester, whose team worked on the microwave and gravity data retrieved by Juno in both 2017 and 2019, wrote in the conversation, quote, That's deeper than the expected cloud-forming weather layer that reaches down to around 65 kilometers below the surface, but higher than the jet streams, which might extend down to 3,000 kilometers, end quote. Marsha Parisi, a research scientist on the Juno science team at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, remarked to The Verge, quote, It's surprising that it goes so deep, but it's also surprising that it doesn't go as deep as the jets. So something is happening at 500 kilometers that is basically dampening the Great Red Spot, 
end quote. What that something is, we don't know yet. But now, having 3D models and all of this extra data, not just two-dimensional observations from afar, is putting us on track to learn way more about the Great Red Spot, Jupiter overall, and other gas giants like it, both within our solar system and beyond. As Bolton told NPR, quote, when we get up close, and this is the first planet we've really been able to open up and look inside, this is going to tell us a lot about how giant planets work throughout the galaxy, end quote. So here's one of those medical miracle stories that could easily be overhyped and is probably going to be splashed across tabloids, but is actually a really important case that scientists think could help them in researching treatments and a cure. A woman in Argentina essentially cured herself of HIV without any drugs or treatment. She didn't do anything. Her body just kind of healed. But the really remarkable thing? She's not the first person this has happened to. Quoting Stat, Curing HIV was always assumed to be impossible, said Stephen Deeks, a longtime HIV researcher and professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, who was not involved in this new study. He and Zhu Yu, an immunologist at the Ragon Institute and senior author on the new report, have teamed up in the past to study HIV patients whose immune systems put up a fiercer fight than most. In a Nature study published last year, they found that such individuals had intact viral genomes, meaning the virus is capable of replicating, but they were integrated at places in the patient's chromosomes that were far from sites of active transcription. In other words, they were squirreled away and locked up inside a dusty corner of the DNA archives. In one patient they examined, a 67-year-old California woman named Lorene Willenberg, the researchers didn't find any intact virus in more than one and a half billion of her cells. Willenberg had maintained control of the virus for nearly three decades without the use of antiretroviral drugs. If the Esperanza patient is the second person known to have been naturally cured of HIV, Willenberg is the first. End quote. And Deeks adds, quote, with these possible natural cures providing a roadmap for a cure, I'm hoping we can come up with an intervention that one day might work for everyone. End quote. About 0.5% of HIV-positive people on the planet experience no symptoms and have extremely low levels of the virus. Now, while at first discovery, researchers thought this was due to a particularly fortunate strain of the virus, consistent, although very rare, findings over the past three decades have shown that it has more to do with the person and their body's response to the virus, not the virus or a strain of it itself. Scientists call them elite controllers, and figuring out exactly what's going on with them could be key to creating more effective treatments for the estimated 38 million people globally who are living with HIV. As for the anonymous Esperanza patient herself, she told NBC News via a translator over email, quote, I enjoy being healthy. I have a healthy family. I don't have to medicate, and I live as though nothing has happened. This already is a privilege, end quote. All right, well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 